Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, from the bottom of each and every ventricle and aorta in my heart for listening to The Tully Show. This week, we take a look back at the new music release month that was June of 1982. Last time I did this, I did a tie-in podcast with all the other new music releases that were not noteworthy enough, at least in my opinion, to make the main pod. I posted that on my Patreon. I had a lot of fun doing that, so I'm going to do it again. Once you're done listening to this, I'll post the tie-in pod for free again so everybody can check it out. Don't act like you don't want to know what Heart and Manowar and Oingo Boingo and many other noteworthy, but not noteworthy enough for this podcast, music artists were up to in June of 1982. Listen to this. Enjoy it. Rate, review, especially on Spotify. Make sure you give it a, a rating. And then come listen to the tie-in podcast, the rest of the new music releases, June of 1982, exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Go, do it. It's free. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live, babe, on tape from a freshly refurbished podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. It is time once again to look back to the distant past of almost actually a little bit more than 40 years ago 40 and i can't pod and do math at the same time something like 40 month 40 years and four months ago we're looking back at june of 1982 at all of the new music releases that were freshies at the time. And as I've been doing this, uh, I don't want, it's not a gimmick. It's not a shtick. I've been doing this concept. I've been doing this podcast for, I think it's the better part of, uh, I think I, did I start in seven? It's, I don't know if it's been two or three years. Once again, pod brain, math brain, two completely different, uh, uh, halves of my cranium that do not want to cooperate. I've been doing this for a minute. And other than the, uh, the, oh, I should get this out of the way. I don't think I have COVID. I don't think I've had COVID in the last week or so, but a lot of people, I did attend an event called Skank Fest and there were people wearing arrest Fauci t-shirts there and members of the Jason Ellis show, at least half of us definitely contracted COVID there. And then I came home and got something developed something that is suspiciously COVID-like as somebody who's had it once or twice before. Um, uh, I, I keep testing negative, but I, I don't know. Whatever I've got, it's mostly gone. I apologize. I'm sure you can hear a little bit of it in your voice. I will try to keep the disgusting throat clearing to uh, to a minimum, but uh, I, I can't promise. Uh... <coughs> there you go. Apologies for the dog barking. It's not mine. There's nothing I can do about that. So yeah, I've been doing this for two or three years. And other than that little period of time where the, the record industry would always, you know, group all of the big releases for Christmas sales. And then as a result, there would be a dead period in the very beginning of the following year. Other than that dead period, 
that happened uh, that ha- still happens now in, in the first quarter of the year. Every single time I look at the new music releases for a month from the early 80s, I'm just like, ooh, that one, ooh, and that one, ooh, and that one, and it it is, it's that case yet again. Not quite as many as last month where I had more for the bonus pod than I even had for the regular pod. I said it before the show, but I'll say it again now. I'm going to do, by the time you listen to this, a little mini pod of the stuff that I don't think can really hang with the stuff we're going to be talking about on this pod. Uh, that stuff, the, the supplementary pod is up and open to the public for everybody to listen to it at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. But once again, just imagine yourself. Let's do it this way. Imagine yourself walking into a record store in, was there a smell to vinyl? There must have been, right? It's just the paper, right? You don't really smell the records. And so it probably smells a lot like going into a bookstore. Imagine walking into a record store in 1982 when maybe you read a bunch of music newspapers and magazines and so you were aware of so-and-sos in the studio working on a new this or that and you kind of knew what was coming out. And I guess they really, they did used to put up posters that Fleetwood Mac is back coming out in three months or whatever. But for the most part, in the absence of the internet and the absence of such a heavy media talking about other media media that we have nowadays just in in the absence of all of the things that uh give us advanced notice on things nowadays imagine god it's really annoying that dog parking and there is absolutely nothing i can do about it my dog is not even home i know it's not him anyway imagine walking into a record store in june of 1982 having little to no idea what you might find there. And on one hand, seeing all this exciting new stuff from established artists. And then also, even when you walk out, you have no idea what you missed because here's here here's something I'll let you know right now. The last thing that we're going to talk about, the last new music release we're going to talk about on this pod is by far the most noteworthy thing that happened in music and music new releases in June of 1982 would absolutely have been by far the least noticed and the least remarked upon. So you would, there might be something sitting in those stacks that you wouldn't have even noticed in June of 1982. Uh, that would later be something you would almost definitely own. If not, you would definitely be uh, familiar with, but we'll just start from the top. Imagine you're walking in the record store and there's that total fucking dickhead behind the counter who thinks he's cooler than you because I mean it's your job to sit there listening to records all day of course you know more about new music than I do just because you sell the stuff just because you ring it up bro in the fucking Jay Giles band t-shirt doesn't mean you goddamn made it it's like when a waiter at a restaurant has an attitude about how good the food at the restaurant is like Dude, I've been a waiter. With all due respect, you just fucking write it down on a pad and then go get the plate and bring it to me. Fucking slow your roll a little bit. So there's some complete asshole who works there. Maybe you had a cool person at your local record store. If so, that person would have been the exception, not the rule. And you start looking around. And uh, what do you find as, as far as new music goes in June of 1982? Well, I mentioned Fleetwood Mac were back. So why don't we start there? To refresh your memory on the trajectory of 
Fleetwood Mac in the form that made them worldwide superstars. They put out the Rumors record in the late 70s, like, like 77, 78, 79. And that's massive. That is like half of the Fleetwood Mac songs that your mom knows are on that. And then they followed that up with the classic, well, we did a big album. How are we going to top ourselves? More is more. Let's make an ambitious double album. And they made Tusk, which you probably know the song Tusk, and you probably don't know. Your mom might not even know Tusk. So Tusk sold a ton of copies because Fleetwood Mac really could not have not sold tons of copies of anything if they had released it on the heels of Rumors, but it failed to match the success of its predecessor. And then the band members, you know, always a a, a collection of individuals and individual talents on their own paths went off and did, uh, some of them did solo records. And I think it probably was to, uh, it was probably a very humbling reality for Lindsey Buckingham, the main male songwriter and singer of Fleetwood Mac when his first solo album. He did make the theme song to National Lampoon Vacation, that Holiday Road song, and that alone makes you a made man as a solo solo artist for life in my mind. But I'm sure Lindsey thought there was more to his solo solo career than going, Holiday Road, sorry, COVID singing, or whatever the hell I've got. Meanwhile, Stevie Nicks, who we probably always thought of as like the face of the operation going way back to when it was just the two of them in a band, Buckingham Nicks. She goes off and does her solo album and she does a bunch of singles with Tom Petty. And now she is a massive star in her own right. And they reconvene at the Chateau d'Aerovie in France and they record a new album. And it is a Stevie Nicks song, a very on-brand Stevie Nicks song that drives the success of the Mirage album. Stevie Nicks at her most mystical, incense-burning, lace-finger-glovesiest with uh, this song right here. Lindsay may be relegated to sideman uh, status on that, but still, as always, his uh, his his guitar playing on that song, tasteful as all fuck. Hold me, uh, Christine McVie song, the other big hit off of the Fleetwood Mac album, released in June of 1982, right around that same time that Fleetwood Mac were off there in some chateau in France. The dudes from Survivor, and yes, you definitely know where I'm going with this, get a uh, a message on their newfangled telephone answering machine, and it's Sylvester Stallone saying, hey guys, I like the cut of your jib, I need a song for a movie, and they do what anybody would do when you get voicemail out of the blue from Sylvester Stallone. They assume it's somebody pranking them and doing a Sylvester Stallone impression. Specifically, they thought it was one of their roadies. But they get they get to the bottom of it, and indeed, Sylvester. Now think about this: how crazy is this? "Eye of the Tiger" is the Rocky song. It just is, right? But it's not. It's not the theme. Not only was there different theme music from the first two Rocky movies, you know the theme music from the first two Rocky movies. It's that "Gonna Fly Now" song, right? Like it's that is some of the most iconic 
film music ever. And yet, how do it's the rare sequel that sort of does outclass its predecessor. So Rocky, Sylvester, I called him Rocky. Sylvester Stallone literally says, I want to do something for the kids. And these, the kids are all about Survivor is the impression that he's under. And so he reaches out to them and they did not, this wasn't a song that he'd heard that he liked. This wasn't a song that Survivor submitted. They were commissioned to write this. Rocky was, had already filmed Rocky three. He was on a tight deadline and he sent them a rough cut of the film on state-of-the-art VHS tape, and they threw it in, and they watched a, a rough cut of Clubber Lang, Mr. T, fighting state-of-the-art Mr. T, fighting Rocky in Rocky Three, and s- stood there watching TV with their guitar on uh, while it, coming up with this iconic chord progression. As cheesy yet somehow still cool as the films that inspired it and that it was made famous by Survivor and the title track from their June 1982 album, Eye of the Tiger, uh, which I do not recommend as somebody who has tried it recently going more than one track deep on that album. Now, I will remind you periodically throughout this podcast, by far the most noteworthy new music release of June of 1982 will be saved for last. But just to give you some idea of the world into which that world-changing recording was born in June of 82, Steve Miller was still doing the Steve Miller thing very much. Some people are just... uh, made for their times. There's some artists, right, that are like, it doesn't matter when they came out, they were just going to be really huge. Like Bob Marley, right? Like if he'd come out, I guess, 10 years earlier, maybe that would have been weird. Maybe reggae wouldn't have worked. But, you know, there's just, there's a timelessness to them. Other people are so incredibly of their time. Right place, right time, right guy, Steve Miller, just like personifies the laid back, unambitious stoner vibe that was just in the air in the 1970s, I recently he came up on my other pod with uh, one of my other pods, my with uh, Jesse May Peluso, the Deuce, and I said Steve Miller to me is like the guy who, like people who wore Chuck Taylor sneakers for uncool, unironic reasons, just because they were a casual, easy, cheap vibe, just to throw on some canvas sneakers with some blue jeans. Steve Miller to me is the guy who breaks up little weed bud in the top of speaking of sneakers of his Chuck Taylor sneaker box to me Steve Miller was remember Stephen Wright they're sort of I guess Stephen Wright was big in the 80s Steve Miller's more of a 70s thing but like Stephen Wright is the Steve Miller of comedy and vice versa they're just like these incredibly stone-faced deadpan 
low voltage kind of performers that still managed to connect with people. But he was this 70s guy, you know, some people call me a space cowboy. And here he is in the 80s, like everybody else trying to figure out like like Fleetwood Mac, for example, they didn't really change their thing up at all. It just it happened to be a durable formula. I'm sure at some point somebody did say, hey guys, just throwing it out there, not trying to offend any artists in the room, but like, are we going to do some drum machines? Are we going to kind of do like Fleetwood Mac meets Don't You Want Me Baby on this album? And they said, nope, we're just going to stay the course. We're still going to use real drums and real bass. And Lindsay's going to be, you know, it's not going to put on a, a robot mask or anything. We're just going to be Fleetwood Mac. And it turns out that a song like Gypsy worked just as well in 82 as it would have worked in 77. Well, Steve Miller, much to the chagrin of Steve Miller fans, and apparently it turns out there were some Steve Miller purists out there at the time, Steve Miller decided to lean into the 80s thing a little bit with a song I remember as a kid. It didn't it didn't move me all that strongly one way or another. It was a very big hit, but to some people, at the cost of Steve Miller's Immortal Musical Soul, this song right here. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and... Oh, no, just Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I cannot think of a bigger blind spot in my knowledge of music than uh, C, S, N, and occasionally Y. I know they're a big deal. Off the top of my head, I can't name a single song that they recorded together. But they were totally a thing, and by um, 1982, they were, well, they were sort of up to their seventh album. I'm leaning liberally on Wikipedia for this, I'll totally admit. So Neil Young kind of came and went. Did he only just do one album with them? Everybody listening to this probably knows more about the story of this band than me, the guy who's telling you about them. So... Stills and Nash, I gather, are the most stable members of this sometimes duo, sometimes trio, sometimes quartet, and maybe just maybe Young just just dipped in um, for this one freak occurrence. So most of the time, it was either it was like Stills and Nash and David Crosby, if he was sober enough to take part in it, is that sort of the deal? I know that. This was conceived of as a Stills and Nash album, and it was written as such, and it was recorded as such, and they'd even used a bunch of other vocalists like uh, Timothy B. Schmidt of uh, Poco and the Eagles, a one-time guest on The Tully Show here, and, um, and Art Garfunkel, seemingly to me perfectly adequate, somewhat exciting additions to a, a Stills and Nash record. But the label was like, nope. We don't want to do anything with it unless David Crosby is involved. So they uh, they solicited his involvement, crammed some vocals in, from him in at the last second, and it ended up being their last successful album. It was it reached the top ten on the Billboard Top 200 chart, and it had a top ten single, which fittingly was about the reasons why they had trouble working with one another. It's literally entitled "Wasted on the Way." So much water moving underneath the bridge. At the water 
Yeah, man. I mean, that's tasteful as fuck, but it's also kind of just like the Grateful Dead for people who never really got into acid. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Wasted on the Way. Meanwhile, in June of 1982, the band Chicago released their 13th studio album. And when you talk about bands who had had some credibility and a unique sound in the preceding decade or decades who totally sold out and totally went 80s, it's hard to think of a better poster child than Chicago. But at least to take their word at it, if you scratch the surface of the decisions that they made and why they made those decisions, maybe the choice wasn't really theirs to make. So Chicago was, you know, what are they actually really called? The Chicago Transit Association. And, you know, does anybody really know what time it is? And backing harmonies and, and horns. The band that had a big horn section that still managed to function as a pop band and connect with a mainstream audience. Sorry, we can't lean Earth, Wind, and Fire. There's not a lot of bands that successfully did that. And Chicago did that. And by 82, there is like nary a horn to be heard. And they just sound like more, you might say, disposable 80s radio-ready pop. So the mitigating circumstances. A- as I mentioned, this is Chicago's 13th album. They hadn't had a successful album for like four years. So I think these guys are probably fighting for their their lives in terms of being employed. You know, it's a very different landscape than you either were on a major record label making new music or you were a has-been. You were either done or you were a nostalgia act on the nostalgia act circuit the majors were the only game in town. You couldn't just start self-releasing your records or just posting stuff on Spotify or go down to an indie label. You, you, you just, you were either in the big leagues or it's like sports. You're either, you either had a job on a major league roster or you simply did not exist anymore. And they had tried sticking with the Chicago way and it wasn't working. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the message, the direct, overt, specific message that the band's label and management was getting from radio stations by the early 80s was, if there's a horn on the record, we're not going to play it. So Chicago is faced with this choice of how do we move forward when we can no longer do the thing that we're good at? And I can recall in the 90s, for example, that first Velvet Revolver album, I do not believe it had one guitar solo on it now really think about that my kids have been listening to the singles by guns and roses from appetite for destruction ad nauseum i didn't think i could get sick of those songs turns out i can sweet child of mine november rain those songs are half vocal sections and half guitar sections my kids just like you and just like everybody else who knows those songs sings along they sing along to the guitar parts just as much as they sing along to axel rose's vocals that's how integral slash soloing was to guns and roses and by the time he's in velvet revolver with scott wyland the, the label says you can't you'll be laughed out of town no one will take you seriously if you do a guitar solo so slash didn't do guitar solos it happens to the best of them and it happened to chicago so they start working with this guy who was very well known for making radio ready uh disposable saccharine pop that your mom liked this guy david foster 
in the band to a man says, David Foster tried to help us preserve our integrity and tried to help us continue to be musical in the way that Chicago was being capable, was capable of being musical while still making music that had a puncher's chance on the radio. Chicago really had two things that made made Chicago sound identifiably like Chicago. One was the horns and the other was, of course, the vocals of Peter Cetera. And I think at this point it wouldn't be too long until he realized, hey, nobody needs the horns anymore. Seems like I'm sort of, I'm the band. I'm the element that gives us a commercial appeal. So Cetera, this may have been his last album with Chicago. If not, it's probably his next to last. But on his way out the door, in the same way that Lionel Richie at a certain point realized that the Commodores only had hits when Lionel Richie wrote and sang a piano ballad that really didn't sound a bit like Brick House, Peter Cetera could get a hit for Chicago in 1982 by writing and singing a song that kind of just sounded like solo Cetera. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry I just want you to know Hold me now I really want to tell you I'm sorry Sorry, that was a really long sample. I was waiting for the hooks to end, but they just kept fucking coming. Holy shit, that song is just a collection of monster hooks. And I'm showing my hand here. I obviously prefer cheesy Chicago to credible Chicago. Not the first time I've been guilty of a musical uh, listening sin like that. Yeah, it's not. It's a very, very, very short leap from this Chicago to solo Cetera being a man who will fight for your honor in Karate Kid 2. It is really so fun for me to watch these, not just to, to there's the schadenfreude part of watching people who had been such huge rock stars for so long, who were golden gods, who would grace the biggest stages of the world forever, all of a sudden feeling the ground drop out from under them and being humbled and scrambling for their own survival. I do, it is interesting to me to see the Fleetwood Macs of the world and the bands who were able to either keep doing their thing and continue being successful in the 80s or who were able to tastefully, credibly adapt their thing into a new decade. But it's also fun to watch the people that just had absolutely no idea how to make themselves fit in a world that, you know, I, I'm as guilty as anyone of harping on the moment in, in 91 when Nirvana releases Smells Like Teen Spirit and now everybody has to reevaluate if the thing that they did that was cool to the world a month ago is still cool now. But a very, very, very similar thing happened as 80s pop really found its footing and MTV sort of defined uh, a musical and visual aesthetic for a brand new MTV generation. And Pete Townsend, Pete Townsend had some success in the 80s, right? Let My Love Open the Door. I think there's more than that. 
but uh, he's he, he's he's definitely you know the classic Who sound belongs very firmly to the late '60s, early '70s, and now it's June of 1982, and Pete Townsend is up to his third solo album. If memory serves, I shared. I don't know that this album is very memorable, but I think I shared the very memorable album title. All the best cowboys have Chinese eyes, which by the time he was promoting his next album, Pete Townsend was like, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. That's incredibly stupid. And what he was getting at is how, you know, in, in the classic Westerns, the the Clint Eastwoods and all that would always be squinting before they had the shootout at the OK Corral. That's what the title is a reference to. But uh, Pete Townsend is not with The Who doing a solo album. This is hot on the heels of another Who album, the album It's Hard. God, those guys were clever. Had come out just three months before All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes, and I think these are in large part songs he'd written for The Who that The Who didn't want to do or didn't get or whatever. So Townsend put them out under his own name, including the lead single Face Dances Part 2. Harmless enough, pleasant enough, ultimately fairly forgettable. Do you remember that song? Did you ever know that song? Unless there's any hardcore solo Townsend fans here, I kind of doubt it. It says that song peaked at number 15 on the singles chart, which is perhaps in part a testimony to it being a somewhat decent song, but probably had a lot more to do with the fact that it was Pete Townsend, and this is still very much the era of... Payola and record labels um, pulling strings by any means, Coke, Hooker, Financial, and otherwise to get songs radio play. Um, and I think you could at that point still really will a Pete Townsend song to 15 on the charts, regardless of whether or not anybody out there on the speaker side of the radio gave all that much of a shit about it. Another classic rocker who was soldiering forward in June of 1982 was Robert Plant, albeit under somewhat different circumstances. This is Robert Plant's, excuse me, Robert Plant's first solo album, The End of Led Zeppelin, had come unceremoniously and tragically with the death of John Bonham. And not a huge Zeppelin guy either. I mean, if you want to talk about ridiculous new wave bands that wore a lot of makeup. I probably know the intimate details of their band biography. Sorry, I can't help you a whole lot with the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Youngs and Led Zeppelins of the world. There's plenty of other podcasts I'm sure that can talk far more intelligently and informedly about those bands. But anyway, Led Zeppelin is no more. If it was ever a conversation for them to continue without John Bonham, they didn't do it. And so Plant continues and is a huge... Phil Collins fan, very noteworthy to me that Robert Plant looks, it's like when David Lee Roth left Van Halen. He's like, okay, it's just going to be such a glaring um, uh, hole in the sound if I don't have an amazing guitar player because it'll just show, it'll just draw so much attention to how much Eddie Van Halen brought to Van Halen. 
And so he uh, recruited Steve Vai, who, you know, his, his, his reputation pretty much speaks for itself. Well, John Bonham needed some heavy, I'm sorry, Robert Plant needed some heavy hitters to, uh, to fill, you know, he was used to having a drummer of Bonham's stature and ability and, uh, distinctive sound behind him. And he, he settled on Phil Collins, who, you know, definitely has never enjoyed, I I have to think his reputation is, uh, improved a little bit over time. He was cheesy as all fuck, but you got to respect the guy. The body of work is amazing. And whatever you might think of Phil Collins as a singer or a songwriter or as a goofy looking dude with a bad mullet who was clearly balding in by the early 80s and yet insisted on growing his hair out, the guy is a frigging amazing drummer. Everybody knows it. Robert Plant knew it. And that's why Phil Collins was the drummer on most of the tracks from Robert Plant's debut solo album. Not a very distinguished solo career for Robert Plant. Well, I guess until years later when he started doing this stuff, he still does with Alison Krauss. But, you know, he'd had such a good run with Led Zeppelin. There maybe wasn't all that much left in the tank. Nonetheless, he was, he, he remains perhaps the iconic rock front man. And this is him stepping out for the first time on his own with a song called Burning Down One Side. One thing I'll say for Robert Plant, I don't think that song's very remarkable. I'm not a huge Led Zeppelin fan anyway, personally. As Led Zeppelin ceased to be an active uh, act making new music, the hair metal thing blew up. And it was just so obvious that every hair metal band, and I'm a huge fan of the genre, almost every band was a fairly obvious clone of Kiss, who we'll get to in a second, or Led Zeppelin, or Aerosmith, or maybe the New York Dolls, and there were within a couple of years there would be so many singers having gigantic hits, sounding as much as they possibly could, like Led Zeppelin, and specifically with their singers sounding as much as possible, like Robert Plant, like a White Snake. That's uh, David. I, I like David Coverdale. Coverdale. All he really is is a Robert Plant clone. It would have been easy for Robert Plant to lean into that and to just ride the tide, like Aerosmith had that whole second act to their career becoming not much more than a glorified hair metal band and imitating the bands they were imitating them. Kiss would try to do the same thing with a little bit less success than Aerosmith. Plant, the the metal world would have welcomed him with open arms to be the singer of a, a hair metal act and make hair metal. David Lee Roth is another one who, Van Halen aren't really a hair metal band. David Lee Roth became a hair metal act in the eighties. The, it, the path was wide open for Robert Plant to do that. Everybody would have wanted to work with him, write with him, enable him to find success doing that. And I think he was always just a, a little too cool for that. He was just interested in doing stuff that was a little bit more distinctive and a little bit less locked into the prominent genres in popular music of the time. And, and, and I don't love the music he created, 
I mean, I, probably I would have loved it if Robert Plant had just gotten hair metal personally, but I respect the guy for zigging a little bit when everybody else was zagging straight into the hair metal thing. So I've mentioned Kiss. Kiss right now in June of 82 is about as low as they would ever get. Their last album, which we talked about on one of these shows, was that concept album, sort of prog rock called The Elder, which I want to say even went unreleased at the time because it was such a bad look for Kiss. A, it wasn't very good, and B, it completely flew in the face of what the Kiss Army demanded that Kiss be. So now they're putting out a Greatest Hits album, and the label says, we need a couple of new songs for the Greatest Hits album, and in the same way that they communicated to Chicago, we're not even going to work with you if you put horns on this stuff. The label um, Polygram, I think, tells Kiss, if you're still doing that elder shit, don't even bother. We need songs that sound like Kiss. And so Kiss does their best to comply with that. Ace Freely is technically still in the band. At least I think he was able to show up and keep his eyes open long enough for the album cover photo. But in reality, I think Vinnie Vincent, who would replace Ace in the band, was already playing guitar on the recordings. And I think Gene Simmons had largely checked out creatively, which he would for almost ever after the 70s, leaving Paul Stanley uh, to be the the creative driver of the band with whatever help he could muster. And indeed, Paul Stanley sat down and worked with some outside songwriters trying to just anything that could keep the Kiss ship afloat. And Paul Stanley sat down with a, a fairly young hit maker named Brian Adams and cooked up this song right here. Spoiler alert, it didn't really work. This album also tanked. Is his voice giving out? Oof. What the hell is that? I never thought. Wow, I don't. I've never heard that song before. I like. I, I think a lot of Kiss that other people dig is pretty bad. So it's hard for me to figure. Maybe it was just that the. Like pop artists always have that challenge when when you're when when your fans are in their twenties, you have them for life. When your fans are 12, and that was the case for a, a lot of KISS fans at the height of KISS's popularity, they grow up and they get into high school and they kind of shed the skin of their youth and they get into cool, new, difficult, artsy you know, bands that take a bunch of drugs or whatever. And uh, one of the challenges of a pop artist is you always need to keep appealing to another generation of youngsters. And maybe it's just that Kiss's fans had aged out and the younger generation wanted more of the skinny tie stuff. I don't know. To me, that's just more Kiss. But what the fuck was up with Paul Stanley's voice there? It'd be easy if he was, uh, if his, you know, if he was known to be a huge alcoholic and or drug addict, but I never got that impression off of him. And it's widely rumored and probably true at this point that he doesn't sing live anymore. He guy's like 70 years old, but he sounded fine on records after this. So I don't, I don't know what the hell was going on, but that was kiss sort of literally going to pieces on uh, a song entitled down on your knees. 
I will briefly remind you, the last band that we play is, let me see, let me look over this list again. I want to say, compared to, I, it depends on how significant you consider Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. In a, re, in a weird sort of way, it is a landmark release in music history, uh, but, but by far the most notable, noteworthy music release of the month is the last thing we're going to do. It's still on the way. But uh, there's before we get to that, I love segueing from here's all the washed up guys that are desperately trying to remain famous to here's the fresh faced kids that are about to wipe those rock and roll dinosaurs off the map. But Eddie Money sort of sits in in a weird nether region, not quite one or the other. Eddie Money, I didn't. I've always kind of wondered where the hell Eddie Money came from because it's pretty unusual if you think about it. For how many like very successful solo rock stars can you think of? Like Tom Petty always had the heartbreakers, right? Like how how many Lenny Kravitz is one? A little bit more of a pop act, but then again, it's not like Eddie Money was death metal. It's just sort of weird. I guess I always thought that Eddie Money had had some past where he was in some band and then broke off of that and went solo. But no, Eddie Money moved to like San Francisco in the mid 70s or something. And I think he'd like had a job as a bank teller and realized he was destined to get a mullet and, um, you know, business on the sides, party in the back and have a skinny tie and leave his button down shirt with one the top button always open and drink a bunch of Budweiser and rock not too hard, but hard enough. And so he, he left his bank job and he moved to San Francisco and he started gigging and he started writing songs and it took. And Eddie Money just became sort of the consummate late 70s album oriented radio ready rock guy. And he kept it going, right? I, I, I love Take Me Home Tonight, the song he did with Ronnie Spector. That's, you know, the guy had a, had a run for the better part of 10 years. But to me, he, he sounds like so much more of a 70s artist than, uh, than an 80s guy. But he's still going. He's still cranking out his hits in, in, in Eddie Money style in 1982. He sounds like he sound. there's something about him that I, he's like divorce rock. Like, he seems like the kind of guy that if your parents split up because your dad got married too young in the 70s or early 80s, once your dad finally got, like, some sort of convertible or a midlife crisis kind of car, that he, like a Camaro, that he would get really into listening to Eddie Money a little too loud while he cruised around, maybe or maybe not too drunk to drive, or, like... If that same couple, the scenario, if if the if the couple splits up, the kind of dude that the divorced mom would have her like rebound fling with would be sort of like an Eddie Money type of dude. I don't I don't I'm, I can't swear that I had COVID, but there's a very very good chance that I did. Anyway, I get very specific vibes off of Eddie Money, and he's kind of a he you know. R.I.P. Eddie Money passed away not that long ago. Kind of a goofy figure in the in the scheme of things of rock and roll. But as a hit maker, I, I like the big songs, and he had another big one here in 1982. 
just rock and roll at its mindless finest eddie money i think i've been love from june of 1982 meanwhile segueing into the bands that were ushering in new sounds new vibes well new very very old sounds masquerading as new sounds brian setzer and the stray cats you know, you just don't question stuff when you're a kid. I, I didn't know the backstory at all. I recall when I watched MTV as much as anybody when it launched, and Stray Cats, had, It's. I, I wonder how successful they would have been had it not been for MTV because it just it helped so much for a band to have a unique visual signifier, and they were doing that greaser thing. I'm, I'm told what they belong to is a movement it's the Teddy Boy youth subculture. I don't know if I had been familiar with the term Teddy Boy. Anyway, apparently Brian Setzer and the rest of, they, they, they went through a couple of different names, but the Stray Cats, whatever they were called at the time, are there in New York. They're gigging around. They're playing at CBs. They're doing their throwback rockabilly kind of thing. And they hear word on the street is the Teddy Boy thing is making a big comeback over in the UK. And as Teddy boys themselves are like, that's where we got to be. So Stray Cats are an American band. They moved to the UK. They end up spearheading the Teddy Boy revival and they get a record deal in the UK, but not in the States, not for like one album. I think they put out like three albums in the UK. So what to us was a new band with a new album and new songs in 82 was largely a compilation of stuff that had already come out a couple years earlier over in the UK. And that includes like the, the, if you know three songs by the stray cats, and I don't think many of us can name any more than that. They're on that first compilation that doubled as Brian Setzer and the band's U S debut in June of 82. We're going to rock this town, rock it inside out. You know, it's funny that like late 50s, early 60s, Elvisy kind of sound made such a huge comeback in the 80s. And yeah, it's, I don't know if you can ever really establish why certain things came back around. It's, you know, once it happens, it's pretty easy to offer theories. But I think the most prominent theory is that. Ronald Reagan was the president for almost all of the 80s, and that was what he represented, was like, hey, guys, those 60s and 70s got a little crazy there, and I think if we just pretend they never happened and go back to, like, the Jimmy Stewart America of the 50s and 60s, everything will be just fine. And it doesn't feel like a coincidence that you had this very 1950s Ozzy and Harriet all-American kind of dude in the White House and at the same time, Poodle Skirts came back and there was a Richie Valens movie and this and La Bamba became a hit again. And I remember being right at the center of that. My sister literally had a Poodle Skirt in like 1987 and Dirty Dancing. That was a big part of that. And Stray Cats are a part of that as well. That's exactly they were they were a revival of music from that exact same era. But it's funny because they're they're a punk band. Like they identified, I think, as a punk rock act. And as I said, they performed around uh, venues like CBGB's in New York before they moved to chase the, their teddy boy dreams over there. I'm sorry, that's very funny to me. 
in the apologies to any Teddy boys who may be in the listening audience today. And my, my point is basically, I'm just going to guess most bands who gigged regularly at CBGB's did not vote for Ronald Reagan. There seemed to be a fairly consistent anti-Reagan, anti-Thatcherite movement among punk rockers, right? That they end up contributing uh, music to a movement, this revival that is so strongly associated with the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Took a long way to get to that point, but I think I finally made it. Thank you, COVID brain. Another artist who benefited from or was just a part of the, the MTV phenomenon in the early 80s was Eddie Grant, who uh, probably to us around then, we thought he was like a Jamaican singer because he had a clear reggae sort of thing going on. Turns out he is actually from uh, Guyana. But 1982, June of 1982, to be specific, is when Eddie Grant released his signature hit. song it really does just kind of do that same thing over and over and over and over again but who doesn't love eddie grant's electric avenue we i've got three songs left which means two songs and then far and away the most noteworthy new music release though it was painfully obscure at the time of uh, not just june of 82 not just 82 but one of the most noteworthy musical arrivals of the 80s in general of, of music in general i cannot oversell the final song that I'm going to play. But first, two British artists who, uh, it's hard to really group them beyond that because one of them is definitely very cheesy and Joe Jackson is pretty definitely not. I, I don't know how familiar you are with Joe Jackson. I've always really wanted to like his music a little bit more than I really do. I read uh, um, at Christian Hand of uh, Tainstick and Death, Death, Die fame, at, at his urging, I read Joe Jackson's uh, memoir. I think it's called A Cure for Gravity. It's really, it's just, it's a cool, interesting, kind of different story of a musician and their rise to success. It's a very humble memoir. And Joe Jackson definitely belongs to a, a, a 70s sort of thing that you would, you know, group him with like an Elvis Costello and... Is she really going out with him? Is the song that I think most people would know. Again, using the the measure of songs your mom knows. I think your mom probably knows, uh, unless your mom is a real hardcore Joe Jackson fan. That might be the only song she knows. But there's "Breaking Us in Two. There's "I'm the Man." There's uh, "Time" is a song that Anthrax would later cover. It's different for girls. Very identifiably 70s singer songwriting kind of stuff, cerebral singer songwriting kind of stuff. And then in the early 80s, he decides to make this very, very musical album. I can't say I knew this for a fact. I just saw this in the Wikipedia. The whole album was sort of a musical tribute homage to the, the songwriter Cole Porter, 
and the it's a very it's tasteful as all hell sort of concepty album it's a very very it's it, it feels like you're in new york it's an homage to not just cole porter but to new york and i'm sure that's one of the reasons why i uh, connect with it um as someone who you know lived in new york and loves new york uh has connected with it so strongly this it's, sometimes I play this game with myself of what is my absolute favorite song from the 80s and take on me and um, everybody wants to rule the world. And then, and then I hear this song and I go, fuck, this just might be my absolute favorite song from the 80s, which is funny because like the Stray Cats, but in a totally different way, something that it's, it's in one, one hand very 80s and on the other hand not 80s at all and too much talk here comes the music uh joe jackson and stepping out with no more angry words to say can come Absolute proof positive that, and it needed to be said at the time, it no longer needs to be said anymore. Was it possible as every single rock critic at the Rolling Stone and Cream Magazine and their ilk would have been asking in 1982, is it possible to make real credible music while using drum machines and uh, artificially sequenced computer generated bass lines? Yes, of course, that is tasteful as all fuck. That's musical as all fuck. That is as perfect as a song can be drum machines and all Joe Jackson and stepping out. And, uh, I feel like the next song is going to sound really, really, really bad and really, really cheesy by comparison. Cause it would be hard for any pop song from the eighties to measure up to, uh, to that song from Joe Jackson. And frankly, I don't think ABC are up to the task. This band exploded in their native UK, says here their debut album went straight to number one and stayed there for four weeks nowadays. I think this would be relegated mostly to the nostalgia kitsch part of uh, your 80s music listening. Nonetheless, this was a massive hit in UK, also very successful here in the US and Canada, I'm guessing. ABC and Poison Arrow. Hey girl, I thought we were the right
Is it horrible? Yes. Is it cheesy? Yes. Is it embarrassing? Yes. Is it in my music collection? Oh, you bet it is. ABC, uh, along with a couple other songs from that ABC debut album. Sort of an even cheesier Duran Duran, uh, more embarrassing, less credible human league. I don't know. It's not cool, but I like it. Anyway, we have come to the end of the rainbow. Thank you for anybody who has uh, struggled along with me and my maybe COVID-addled brain. We've definitely, I don't know how, how much I've added to this conversation this time, but we've definitely looked back at some pretty amazing and noteworthy music. And I have, as I've said several times already, saved the most noteworthy for last. In late 1981... Lars Ulrich, yep, that's where we're going, placed a classified ad in a music newspaper to which James Hetfield replied. By the time June of 82 had rolled around, I think Dave Mustaine was was or was about to be in the Metallica fold. Still no Kirk Hammett, still no Cliff Burton. And Lars, I think, had the band, well, clearly had the band name Metallica and little else talked his way onto a forthcoming compilation, what would become a series of compilations called Metal Massacre. And Lars played drums, James Hetfield sang, played rhythm guitar, and played bass. And a man by the name of Lloyd Grant was credited with the guitar solo on the very first recording by Metallica. This is before their first live performance. The band's name was misspelled, two T's in Metallica on the release of their debut recording. And I will leave you with this. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show week in, week out. I really do appreciate it. I'll remind you again, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. I'm going to roll straight into doing another podcast with all the stuff that I left out of this episode. So if you need yet more June 1982 new music releases in your life, patreon.com slash Mike Tully for free. I will see you there. But for now, I leave you with this. The debut of Metallica. Metallica.